Indiana Jones, back in the saddle. Get back. The dial could change the course of history. Fasten your seatbelt. I've been looking for this all my life. Harrison Ford takes one last crack at the bullwhip in Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which is reportedly the 80-year-old actor's final portrayal of Hollywood's best-known archaeologist. But how do the plots of the five Indiana Jones movies that have come out over the past 42 years square with what actual archaeologists actually do? If those movies took place in a realistic 21st century setting, Indy would be wielding a laser scanner rather than a bullwhip and spending months learning the ways of indigenous peoples rather than flying in to steal a golden idol. The technologies and the sensitivities that are part of the standard operating procedure for modern archaeologists may not be as exciting as an Indiana Jones movie, but they get the job done better than Indy ever could. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the place where science and technology intersect with fiction and popular culture. Because we're talking about the world's most famous movie franchise with an archaeologist as the hero, this podcast is a double feature. In the first half, you'll hear Chris Bagley, an archaeologist who has taken on some adventures in Central America and the Mediterranean that might have made Indiana Jones envious. Then you can feel free to take a break, refill your bag of popcorn, and come back for the second half, starring Brittany Brown, representing a new generation of archaeologists who are equally comfortable with a trowel, a side-scan sonar system, or an Instagram account. Let's start with Chris Bagley, who's based at Transylvania University in Kentucky. Chris has spent years studying the history and culture of Honduras's Mosquito Coast, which is the supposed site of a so-called lost city known as La Ciudad Blanca, or the White City. Bagley's role in the search for the White City is documented in a book titled Jungle Land. Bagley eventually focused his research on underwater archaeology and developed a 3D imaging system for shipwrecks. He's also the host of a public radio show called Future Tense and the author of a book titled The Next Apocalypse, which draws upon the lessons of past cultures to anticipate how present-day societies might cope with the future's looming threats. I started out our Zoom conversation by asking how Bagley was inspired to get into Indiana Jones's line of work. For me, it was Jacques Cousteau, actually, which isn't, uh, he is not an archaeologist. But, you know, as a, as a kid, one of the appealing things to what I saw there was field science. And you would go out and do your science in these settings that were exciting, you know, to me as a as a kid, and that sort of uh, pushed it in that direction. Uh, Indiana, the first Indiana Jones came out when I was in high school, and that, of course, got everybody's attention. Suddenly, archaeology was on the radar where it might not have been. You know, it was sort of on mine just because of interests in, I don't know, popular science books. I remember the, the leakies and a lot of the sort of paleontology coming out of uh, Kenya and Tanzania, I guess, at that time was popular, and those sorts of things appealed to me. So in, in my case, it was 
sort of this combination of uh, actual science that prompted my interest with uh, with the, the fiction. I've read that you devote an entire class session in your intro to archaeology to Indiana Jones and whether he's ultimately good or bad for the field. So what's your verdict? Yeah. Well, you know, when we talk about this, we, we talk about a lot of different things. You know, first of all, uh, sort of inclusivity and in what does the Indiana Jones character in movies tell you about what you need to be to be an archaeologist? And there are certain things that, um, like the sort of athleticism, that is certainly not part of what you need. I mean, there are, you know, archaeologists with uh, limited mobility. There are archaeologists with all sorts of physical parameters that they have to operate in. And uh, that's, of course, not the kind of thing you get in an action movie. You know, we talk about how much it actually looks like archaeology and what part of it is similar and what's not. And, you know, there are some types of archaeology that has have some similarities to the things you'll see in those movies, but there's a lot that's not. I think ultimately we kind of come down in the middle, you know, which is not very satisfying. It, you know, it is uh, it is something that generated a lot of, of interest, but it also, as you might expect in a movie, depicts archaeology in a way that's not particularly uh, accurate or realistic. What are the main differences between the fiction and the reality? Uh, I imagine in one aspect, uh, there's a lot more routine uh, that goes into actually working on a scientific project. But on the other hand, I suppose that it's a more complex job. It's not just coming in with your bullwhip and uh, stealing the golden idol. Yeah, yeah, the... Well, I mean, one of the big things is that what's depicted in the movies would essentially be the field work that you would do. Now, it's not particularly representative of any field work that most of us have been part of, but, you know, it leaves out all the preparation, all the grant writing, all the reading, all of the logistical things that you do, and all of the, I don't know, work that goes into creating the projects ultimately that we do it also of course leaves out everything you do after you get back out of the field with your data which you know might be artifacts it might be other kinds of data and what you have to do with that and how you produce uh, whatever it is you're producing how you collaborate with people uh, how it gets incorporated into publications or nowadays things like blogs or podcasts or documentaries or the teaching of classes so that's a big thing one of the principal things that that I think is the big unrealistic element of uh, Indiana Jones in terms of sort of the, the archaeology is kind of the motivation. This is often what you get when you see uh, fictional depictions of archaeology. It's often motivated by the desire to find some particular artifact. That's really not what we ever think about. Or it's uh, motivated by proving a certain theory that you have. Again, that's just not really part of what we do. You do have things that you want to answer, of course, and we all have biases and preconceived notions. Typically, what we've done is design something that we think will help answer a question, 
and we're out there to collect the the data. Speaking of field work, you've been involved in some adventures that sound as if they're straight out of a movie, including <laughs> studying shipwrecks in the Mediterranean and off the coast of Central America, as well as treks into the wilds of Honduras. Tell me a little bit about that work and what it's like to be on those adventures. Well, the for the first part of my career, I worked principally in the rainforest in Central America in a place called the Mosquito Coast. Uh, or the Mosquitia. And this is a large area of relatively unpopulated rainforest. So it was really, you would drive to the end of the road and then go on further to maybe the village where I lived or the sites that we would work at or the river valleys we would be looking at. And, you know, that involved a lot of hiking and camping. I mean, we would routinely go on these trips for two to three weeks through the through the rainforest documenting archaeological sites. It was nice to work and live with people like the Pesh, an indigenous group that I lived with, who really knew the rainforest, knew how to do this sort of stuff. And um, you know, that that was for, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years of my career, what I did mainly was to sort of focus on these remote areas in the rainforest. And there's a few reasons for that, partly because we didn't know what was there. And so, you know, that's uh, probably good enough reason. But also there's a difference in what you find in these really remote areas because people haven't been living there constantly taking stuff or building on top of the archaeological sites or whatever. So so there is uh, there are some real uh, things that you can find out in those settings that would be hard to see elsewhere. Around probably 15 years ago, I switched to mainly uh, maritime archaeology or underwater archaeology, and that's almost all that I do now. Um, And in that, I look mainly at shipwrecks, and I've done this uh, in a few different places. Um, The Mediterranean, like you said, some in the Caribbean and the Pacific and off the coast of El Salvador, uh, in the Indian Ocean, off the coast of Tanzania, and you know, these are all adventurous sorts of things in, you know, in the public eye. Partly that's because, you know, we think of these places as exotic places and we've exoticized them, right? That's the part of the whole colonial history that we have. We've turned these these places into, uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know Shangri-La type of place. Yes. Yeah. And. You know, when you're there living and working with people, of course, it humanizes everything in this way. And it, you know, you don't think about it like that. Um, And so when I think about my time in Honduras, it's not really about adventures in the jungle. I mean, yeah, we were out in the rainforest and doing this stuff, but it's really time with those people. That was, you know, that's what you remember. Frankly, most of what we find as archaeologists is just broken junk, you know, and I don't want that stuff. I don't want it in my house. I don't want to collect it. I really don't care about it, to tell you the truth, except for the information that it contains. I like the story. You know, we can all appreciate pretty things or or the old things, but the the, the focus on the object is is something that's not really there 
you know, ex- except in the sense that there are certain objects that might give you certain information. So you're hoping you find that kind of object. In terms of the technological tools that you use, I imagine that there are lots of tools that are available now that would not have been available to the fictional Indiana Jones in the 1930s or even the 1960s. What What are the chief tools that mm-hmm. are used in the field nowadays? It really depends on the project and, and how you're doing it. But for instance, well, let's take underwater archaeology. You know, one of the first things we do in many cases is a work with sonar to see if we can find things underwater with sonar that was available then, but would not have been available to Indiana Jones. In fact, there was no underwater archaeology at that time at all, partly because of scuba technology, you know, had yet to be invented. And that really opened it up. Maybe the terrestrial stuff would be better. You know, in regular terrestrial archaeology, it sites on dry land. One thing we use now a lot is LIDAR which is, uh, you know, using a, a series of laser pulses to get distances. And through that, you can create an image, a 3D image. You can even through algorithms by looking at the way that the data is distributed, you can remove some of it, which ultimately becomes the tree canopy and effectively look through the trees at the ground surface. And, uh, you know, that allows us to find archaeological sites easily. I mean, I think of all the trips I took, all the months I spent walking through the rainforest carrying the heavy packs and all that, which, um, you know, which I like. But now you don't really need to do that in the same way. You can target it much more. You know, I would be going off of what people told me or what people remembered or looking at maps and trying to imagine where things might be. Now you can fly over an area with LIDAR and essentially see everything that's visible. And some things that you would never see with the uh, naked eye on the ground because they're too subtle, but you can see them and manipulate the image, um, you know, on a computer. So that's a that's a great tool. We do a lot of 3D imaging of different sorts now, which of course wouldn't have been available then. This is often done to present your findings. You might have this kind of thing on a website or a museum. But we also use it for some metrics for measuring. So there are some types of 3D measurements uh, that we can take that produce really accurate, uh, high-resolution results where we can get to sub-millimeter accuracy, sometimes down to maybe 10 microns or 20 microns, where you could measure the types of things that you might need to measure for some reason. Um, But I'll tell you that a lot of our projects, and I would say the majority are using technology that have always been available. And most of it is just getting people on the ground or in the water to look for things. In fact, I worked on a project in Greece around an island called Forni. And in three short seasons, about two or three weeks each, um, we found 50-some shipwrecks around this, this island. Uh, in on the, I remember after the second season when I was there, somebody knew that we had found about 45 shipwrecks in about 45 days and asked how we found so many shipwrecks, what kind of technology were we, were we using? And yeah, the answer was, we're not using any technology. We're talking to the people that live there and the people that fish those waters and dive for sponges and know where everything is. And of those 40-some shipwrecks, uh, you know, all but about five were shown to us by local people. 
And I'm sure those other five, they also knew about, we just stumbled on them before we managed to hear about them. But, you know, so the technology exists, but we still really rely a lot on, on uh, things that are sometimes surprisingly basic. Yeah, it's interesting that the new Indiana Jones movie kind of uses as its main plot device this dial of destiny, which is inspired by the real-life Antikythera mechanism found in a shipwreck uh, back in 1901 or so. And uh, it took uh, some modern-day tools, for example, 3D imaging of the internal structure of that artifact to, to figure out what it might have been used for, and it was used to calculate all sorts of astronomical data, including the occurrence of eclipses. And I imagine that illustrates how the technology and the understanding of a culture come together to to figure out the answer to that mystery. Yeah, yeah, and I I should say that my focus right now, I've been talking about technology that we use in the field to sort of collect data. You know, when we get back out of the field and we're looking at things, you know, now, of course, we use DNA sequencing. We use all sorts of tools to get uh, chemical contents, to look at trace elements, to get information that we wouldn't have had before. And, you know, you really see a lot of that when you look at the history of archaeology. You know, for instance, one of the things that we do routinely now is to take and keep soil samples from the different contexts. And that's because we can often look at pollen or we can look at other things that were the in, in the environment that might be microscopic uh, that are present in the soil. And that wasn't done before. And often archaeologists now really wish archaeologists in the past had excavated a little less, you know. And in fact, one of the basic uh, tenants now for archaeologists operating in virtually any arena is to try to create the minimal impact to the resource, to the archaeological site. You know, if we're going to dig a hole, which essentially destroys anything that you're digging up, certainly destroys the context, right? You still have the artifacts. You really have to justify that. Why is it that you need to dig for this? Why can you not get this information in some other way? What are the frontiers of present-day archaeology? Are there particular technologies or perspectives or lines of thinking that are expanding the frontiers of the field? Yeah, and I think you hit on it there. It's ways of thinking and the questions that we ask. You know, when we look at the history of archaeology, there have been obviously these technological advances and then they've made huge differences or methodological advances, even just digging in small strata, you know, to get sort of the stratigraphic uh, data. I mean, that was, you know, a relatively basic methodological advance, but it made a big difference. But if you look over the history of the discipline and you look at how it's changed, it's changed often because of the questions that the archaeologists ask. And sometimes that relates to technology. Sometimes it relates to questions we're asking in a larger context. I mean, one example I give in some of my classes is to look at some of the illustrations from museums from the 1950s and 60s showing early humans in the Americas, for instance. Of course, it doesn't say early humans. It says early man, right? And there are the men fighting the woolly mammoth or the mastodon, you know, the type of thing that certainly happened, of course. 
but was also not typical of the activity. I mean, we know, for instance, that most of the calories of hunters and gatherers come from gathering the plants, typically. And and I'm certain that uh, I'm not alone in thinking I'd rather hunt something that has really no chance of winning that fight, right? Uh-huh. That's um, And that's, of course, how any predator operates, and it's how humans operate. And so, you know, there's a reason, of course, they're going after those uh, large, dangerous animals. But the fact that that was the illustration signals something about the kinds of things people were focused on. It tells us something about who the archaeologists were, which at that time would have been mostly men. And we see that as those things change, the kinds of questions that we ask change, and that really drives the changes in the discipline uh, more than more than any technology else. Mm-hmm. If you had the opportunity to pitch a concept for a movie set in contemporary times with an archaeological theme, what would you pitch? Yeah, okay. If I were to pitch something, archaeologists now, most of us, conceive of ourselves as working within a community or maybe several communities, in order to sort of give voice to this part of the past that, that hasn't been told. And that's, I think that would be the motivation that I'd like to see. Where is this ar- archaeologist working? What are they trying to say? What's the value of that to the community? And why is it something they want to say now? So, for instance, Um, I mean, you can think about almost any conflict. I mean, look at Ukraine and Russia, you know, in the way that history gets used and the way that, I mean, we all know the story of, you know, Hitler and the Nazis and archaeology and the way that it was misappropriated or mispresented in a way. And and that uh, gets gets back to the Indiana Jones movies. (laughs) Yeah, of course. And so that's what, you know, I would like to see, you know, I would like to see it reflect what archaeology looks like today, which is uh, something that, except for the older academic archaeologists, professors, it's majority women. There's a very different attitude, not just because of that or unrelated uh, uh, perhaps to that, a very different attitude about what they're doing. There's a different sense of the value of the work and the importance of it. And I would like to see that portrayed, I think. Yes. Some people might ask whether there's a practical purpose to studying past cultures. And you've written a book that delves into that subject. It's not about finding lost cities or golden treasures. Uh, Tell me about the next apocalypse and what lessons we can learn from studying the past. Yeah, the the next apocalypse is a book that I wrote was published um, a little over a year ago, and I began the process before the pandemic. It sounds like it might have been something responding to that. It, it was not. I focus on the way in which we have, in popular culture, depicted how societies collapse in all of these apocalyptic movies. You know, from I don't know, The Walking Dead to books like Lucifer's Hammer, 
well, any of any of these, you know, type of uh, apocalyptic movies, the the Last of Us was one that uh, just came out. In in a lot of these, you know, there are some assumptions made, I guess, about how what it looks like, what people do, how societies collapse, and all of this. And as an archaeologist that has looked at a lot of this, I mean, any archaeologist looks at societies that are always transforming sometimes in ways that we would call a collapse or some sort of apocalyptic event and it struck me that you know we're depicting it wrong we're thinking about it wrong and when you look at things like preppers the things that you're preparing for just aren't the kinds of things that seem to have affected people in the past and so that was you know what I wrote about. So I, I started out looking at a few different examples of societies that collapsed or had radical transformations. You know, from the Roman Empire to the ancient Maya to the uh, Native Americans in North America with the arrival of the Europeans, and looked at ways that that was different than our depictions and what it really looked like, and then talked about the ways we seem to think about it, what that says about us, why we present these things this way, what sort of fears and fantasies they represent, and why that matters, you know? And so in this case, the the next apocalypse isn't so much about how to survive the, the, the next big event, but rather how communities have survived and how People have had to uh, come together as communities and remain as communities through these transitions. Right. You do provide a list of items for a survival kit, for example. That's right. (laughs) But that's not the focus of the book. The focus is more on what sorts of skills people would need. And and sure, uh, it would be helpful to know how to start a fire, but the skills that probably will be needed are more in the line of interpersonal relationships and social organization. Because as you point out, uh, an apocalypse, a so-called apocalypse doesn't typically happen all at once. That's right. They're very, they're typically very slow, or at least they're building up. It could be that, you know, people have not paid attention or didn't want to believe it. And so you end up having this happen in a way that seemed very sudden, but in fact was, you know, had been building up for a century or so. I think we find ourselves sort of in some of those situations now. But, you know, one of the things is that I teach um, wilderness survival courses, and I have for quite a while, partly coming from some of the skills I learned in the rainforest in Honduras, but also skills that, that I learned as a kid or that I learned specifically to teach this. And those I never taught as, um, I never envisioned them being how to survive this. It was mostly if you get lost hiking or whatever, you're stuck out in the woods for a couple of days. How do you survive if it's, you know, if it's cold? Uh, how do you find your way home and all that? So, but, but what I saw happen was people would ask about these larger phenomena. You know, if it all falls apart, where will you go? Surely you have some plan, right? Where are you going to run off to? And, uh, you know, people were a little surprised that my response would be, well, I'm not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stay right here because that's the only option. There's nowhere to go. You 
stay where you are and you fix the problem. Have you ever thought about how archaeologists of a future generation, I don't know, maybe hundreds or thousands of years from now, will look upon our age? Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, one of the, the things that, that I'll do routinely in my classes uh, is to take some element of material culture. And we talk about the, what you could learn from this. How much of it can you do you know now that you're immersed in this culture? How much of it would you know if you were removed by 500 years and you didn't have the context? You know, a lot of the things that we have have certain kinds of social capital or cachet or say something about us because of these particular associations. There are brands that are high status and brands that are low status of clothing, for instance. There's, you know, haircuts or tennis shoe styles that signal something about your subcultural preference. You know, they might even say something about your political views or your sexuality. And those things might be really hard to look at. But yeah, I, I think about this a lot. One item that we often look at in my classes is, is just a, a plastic water bottle and everything that can tell somebody, you know, here's a bottle. It clearly has these design elements on the label and the bottle itself that are meant essentially to make it an attractive product, which suggests some sort of distribution system that's, you know, a market system or, you know, capitalism. Uh, we have the, you know, the fact that it's um, marketed as like a, a single serving. You know, you could buy water in a gallon or five gallons and pour it into a cup. You know, it's plastic with a recycling symbol on it. That to me is interesting. It suggests that people know there's something wrong with this and they're making some minimal effort to deal with it, but it must not be bad enough that they're willing to actually do anything because we're still making and using those. So, yeah, I think a lot about what kinds of things would uh, future archaeologists be able to discern if they were just looking at the material culture. You know, I suspect they'll also be looking at things, listening to things like this, uh, reading texts. But you never know, you know, you never know or, well, what will be accessible in the future. Well, I think they could do worse than to listen to this podcast. It's been a lot of great information from, from you, Chris, and I appreciate your time. And I love the next apocalypse, the book, not the event. But uh, yes. so thanks thank again you. for being with us. Okay. Well, thank you very much. When we come back, I'll talk with Brittany Brown about the generation that's taking the archaeology of Indiana Jones in a dramatically different direction. Just one look at Brittany Brown's Instagram account, at the Black Archaeologist, will tell you that she's not from the Indiana Jones generation. She's as much at home in a strapless dress as she is in scuba gear. Brown specializes in the study of captive African burial grounds, African-American mortuary practices, and the preservation of sunken slave ships. She's been a member of the faculty at Bard College, but she'll soon be taking up an archaeology position in Jacksonville, Florida, her hometown. I asked Brown the same starting question I asked Chris Bagley. What inspired her to become an archaeologist? I decided to become an archaeologist after my first field school, which was based in my hometown, Jacksonville, Florida. That hands-on experience, um, being able to touch history in my city, uh, really gave me the drive to pursue this career uh, further. 
And what sort of experience was that? Right. So uh, it was probably the summer of uh, 2010. I was an undergrad at the University of Florida. Um, and we went out to, uh, there's a famous plantation here that's actually a national park. It's called Kingsley Plantation. And there uh, we excavated uh, some of the cabins. But also that year, I made the discovery of the Captive African Cemetery. So uncovering bones for the first time was really a transformative experience for me as an archaeologist. And from that point on, uh, my work has really been driven towards cemeteries and commemoration and burial practices ever since that day. And so here I am. And uh, of course, burial practices and the whole idea of bringing up the past literally in a physical sense uh, is something that people are familiar with from movies. For example, The Mummy, uh, a lot of the Indiana Jones movies have to do with uh, digging up ancient uh, treasures. Uh, were those the sorts of things that helped inspire you or were those things that kind of seemed like fiction and really didn't factor into uh, what was important to you in becoming an archaeologist? Oddly enough, as a kid, I wasn't really exposed to archaeology as a career path. And I didn't watch a whole lot of Indiana Jones until I started doing archaeology. And then I started seeing it everywhere and it was everywhere and everybody that was in my program was inspired by it. So I kind of went back and binge watched all the movies that I had missed. And so it didn't inspire me. Indiana Jones in particular didn't inspire me, but Laura Croft kind of did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tomb Raider. I played the video game. <laughs> Tomb Raider. I played the video game and I was very into her character as a kid. Um, and so her journey and her as a character um, mm -hmm. was a little bit fascinated by as a kid. That's interesting. Uh, I think in a lot of fields, people have said that they're inspired when they see someone who's like them doing something that's really interesting. And I guess Lara Croft, in a sense, the idea that a woman can do these cool things and have adventures. And, and I suppose for you as a black woman, you have that dimension as well. As you say, you were dealing with the uh, African cemetery practices, and so that must have resonated with your personality and your background. Yeah. Um, so cemeteries are, for a lot of communities, you know, sacred spaces. And so when you go into those spaces and you have a connection to the community, um, you do have a different type of reverence for that space. Of course, you always want to be respectful when you go into any archaeological site of the people and their history, but it's really different when it's in your backyard and you have a familial connection to the space and the place that you are working in. And so you don't see a ton of women in this field. And when you do, you're always happy to see you know, another woman in this field, whether uh, they're doing terrestrial or underwater archaeology, we have a sort of a camaraderie. <laughs> Are there other archaeologists who particularly inspire you as you go about your work? Um, I would say, yeah. And oddly enough, there's a lot of archaeologists who I know we tend to look up for inspiration, but there's a lot of my peers um, that inspire me in archaeology, um, and they're the globe over, and they're all on social media <laughs> and posting their great finds and posting their career journeys. And I draw a lot of inspiration, actually, from people who are right next to me and who are coming up with me in this field. I can imagine that 
your background cuts both ways uh, for since there are not that many women in archaeology and probably not that many black people in archaeology. Uh, I can imagine how that is something of a hurdle you have to overcome in, in terms of being taken seriously. But on the other hand, because of the things that you're doing, uh, you have an affinity and, as you say, a reverence for that community. And so that would probably uh, be an advantage for you. How does the positive and the negative side balance in your case? So for me, it's it's always about negotiating space. And so when you have someone that looks like me in this discipline and we look at what this discipline's history is, when we look at the Indiana Jones stories, he's always um, in some exotic place studying or looking for something exotic among people that he's not necessarily familiar with. He might be familiar with scholarly, but not really living amongst people and absorbing and immersing in their culture and their language and uh, their life ways and uh, cultural knowledge and backgrounds and things like that. And so it's, it's, it's almost like moving from subject of study to becoming a scholar. And so I think uh, traditionally African descended people have been the subjects of study and not always had the pen and the power to be the scholars and experts of knowledge on their own histories and their material culture. Um, and so that's always been a negotiation. But I don't necessarily see it as a negative. Um, I, I find it to be quite empowering. And um, when you see people who were of the communities that you're studying rise up to uh, come through the ranks as anthropologists and archaeologists and uh, become the experts um, within the academy on their on their communities. Mm -hmm. And then in terms of the communities that you work with, uh, do you have examples of uh, ways in which those communities become more aware of their history and their culture because of the work that you do with them. I imagine that you encounter people out in the field and, and maybe there are lessons that they learn from the archaeology that you're doing about their culture. Yeah, so the, the way that I um, know about my archaeology is in collaboration with communities. And so from day one, communities are involved in my work. And so my work is also informed by what they want to know about the archaeological record. Because sometimes when we go in as scholars, we have our own questions. We have our own things that we want to find out. We have our own obsessions that we fixate on um, in the archaeological record and our own questions that we want to ask it. And um, when you call in community, they may have similar questions or they may have a totally different set of questions. And so then you have to kind of blend the two together so that they are also getting something out of what you're doing. Um, and that's what we will always want archaeology to be. It's not digging holes for holes sake. <laughs> we want to dig up things so that we can know more, um, more than what we already know. And sometimes communities can actually help you approach it from a different angle um, that might be also more insightful than what the academy has given you in your toolbox. Right. So are there particular things like, uh, I don't know whether there are findings that stand out as something that the community maybe didn't know about as well as they could have. And because of the work of archaeology, they learn a lesson about who they are. And I guess the flip side of that is that are there things that you've learned from the community that have made a surprising difference in your perspective as an archaeologist? 
I would say, yeah. And I, I would say even outside of my work, um, the work at the New York Burial Ground has been really, really uh, paramount in shaping this sort of community engagement model. And so when it comes to my own community, the way that they demanded respect of the dead uh, was a really critical point for me in my archaeology project. So we began our archaeology uh, with a libation ceremony, which is a cultural ceremony to sort of celebrate the dead and to commemorate the souls that were buried at that plantation. And they didn't want necessarily any excavation of the sites that I was interested in in possibly doing excavation on. And sometimes I think that can be hard for archaeologists to hear that people don't want their remains dug up. But I think that when you're working with community, um, you always yield to what would be the least harmful thing for their history. When we think about it, do you really want someone to just dig your grandmother up because they think it's important to dig your grandmother up, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's that level of respect that you have to come in to every community with. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, did you decide, okay, I'm not going to do that? Or were there are there times when you persuade people, you know, this is something that will help your understanding of where you're coming from? And maybe they say, okay, you have a point. So for, and I think that's, I think that's an awesome. So for my particular project, I did not dig, but then for simultaneous project that I was involved in, and it had to do with keeping bodies um, in a laboratory, um, and it was indigenous. Uh, we, the community was brought in to decide what they wanted to happen with those remains um, and the research that they wanted to happen with those remains. And they, they did actually agree to have some analysis and tests run um, and things done on the re- those remains before they were sent back to the tribal community. So it's... <sighs> It's always a situation where you kind of got to play it case by case, ear by ear. Um, And it depends on what information can you really get um, because we are limited um, with our technology and the things that we have access to. Can we really add more? And that's what we're really looking for is how much more can we add? Because at the end of the day, uh, archaeology is a destructive science. So once you destroy the context, uh, once you start taking samples and start grinding away things, um, it's gone and you can't redo it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you have one shot. So it might be better. Um, and that, and, it's, and so when you say, no, I'm not going to dig today, that doesn't mean 20 years from now, you're not going to have another generation or even yourself that comes back to the site with new technology, with new questions, better questions, better technology. Um, and you're more able to get um, what you need or better answers <laughs> to mm-hmm. those questions out of that site at a later date. Mm-hmm. So you're always sort of planning for the future in that way, too. Yeah. I wanted to back up a step and just ask you about your lines of research. It looks as if you have two focuses to your work. One is uh, learning about cemeteries for the African diaspora and funerary practices, how that uh, sheds light on the culture of that historical community. And then the other has to do with the Slave Rex Project, where you are actually doing maritime archaeology, you're scuba diving and uh, investigating these wrecks. And so uh, they 
you know, they basically have to do with the history of that culture, but from two different aspects. And so maybe you could tell me a little bit about the sorts of questions that you are trying to get at with those lines of research. Yeah. So um, for burial practices, for me, it's about looking for the worlds that Africans were able to create despite their condition of captivity. Um, and oftentimes you can find the material evidence of that in the cemeteries. So the thing about captive African people, right, is that when we look at the historical record, when we look at the archives, which is where a lot of archaeologists, even Indiana Jones, says he spends most of his time, <laughs> in that, and that would be true in the archives. Um, but when we go there, there are groups, um, Native people, Black people, who are often left out of those written records outside of what value they may have um, provided as chattel, right? And so sometimes, more often than not, we need the archaeological record as an alternative record that can tell us more about the worlds that they created and who these people were because they weren't written down um, in history books. And so that's that <laughs> for the cemeteries. And then I see shipwrecks um, also as sort of like underwater burials, in a lot of cases, because for some people, they were the last um, places that they lived and were alive and well and breathing. And shipwrecks are also kind of like little time capsules of history. And um, they happen as accidents more often than not. And when they go down, they're these perfect little um, capsules of history that you can uh, explore. And so when you put that in the context of the transatlantic slave trade, there's not a lot of maritime archaeology that has been dedicated to that field of study. So it's it's pretty new um, in the field of archaeology. And so there's a lot of sites that we have yet to uncover that are just on the ocean floor waiting for us to explore. Are there new sorts of technologies that you can bring to bear to explore those frontiers? Uh, I suppose there are some things you can learn from other maritime expeditions, you know, ranging from Civil War shipwrecks to the Titanic to even uh, ancient uh, Roman and Greek ships that, that may have traversed the Black Sea. Uh, there, there are lots of lessons, I suppose, that can be learned from those other projects and applied to uh, studying the slave ships. Yeah. So the one of the great things about this uh, new frontier is that people have been diving shipwrecks for a very long time in this discipline <laughs> um, in comparison to uh, how long we've been actually intentionally looking for captive African shipwrecks. And so a lot of the technology that they have been using and that they have been evolving from being able to use side scan sonar to being able to create 3D imaging of some of the artifacts um, and the conservation practices um, and techniques that they're using to preserve these sites underwater for future posterity is all applicable. Um, to captive African site. And even the salvaged, um, salvage uh, field techniques that people are using to quickly remove or salvage what they can from archaeological sites are also applicable um, to captive African shipwrecks. And I think the Clotilda um, in Alabama is a great example of that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some recent reports saying that the Clotilda, which is one of these slave ships that went off, as you say, off the coast of Alabama, uh, is, is in good condition. And so they're trying to figure out what's the best way to preserve it and to, to bring up and study the remains. Is that the sort of thing that, that you would do? What, what sorts of work do you do when you are on a dive? So I have uh, worked mostly Civil War period, World War II period off the coast of North Carolina um, using side scan sonar. And what we did was we took the uh, side scan sonar out on a tillfish. It looks like a little missile um, and it has a lot of physical sensors on it and it sends and receives acoustic pulses to help us paint a picture of the seafloor or detect anomalies or objects, which would be uh, shipwrecks uh, that we would, are looking for. And so you, you kind of go back and forth in a straight line, back and forth on a grid, and you basically send signals down and have them bounce back, and it generates an image on a screen, and it tells you uh, where something might be. After that point, you can decide based on the historical record and based on the images that you've received, do you want to dive there? Um, because everything is time, everything is money, everything is energy uh, So and resources. So where do you want to put those? And side scan sonar can sort of give us some of the best um, guesses of where we might want to put those resources when it comes to excavation. Um, and beyond that, it gives us a characterization of the site. Um, so what is down there? What is the environment kind of like? What are we walking into? Uh, when we go down there. And so when we do archaeology projects in the water, it is archaeological, but it's also interdisciplinary in that way because there's a lot of different moving pieces when it comes to an ocean environment. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel kind of like an Indiana Jones or a James Bond <laughs> when you're working with this stuff? Um. Yeah, honestly, yeah, I think I think we all have like, I think we all sort of in a way identify with a piece of that um because it's not something that everyone sort of gets to do, gets to touch, gets to be a part of. In that way, um archaeology hasn't been that accessible. Um and so when you are it is a little surreal of a feeling to be the expert on this one particular thing and then people from all over the world want to talk to you about what you know about this object or about this site um, or about these these people in their history and their culture so um but i think there's been strides in this field i recently got tapped to be a part of the coastal heritage at risk task force which is basically using ai to make some of the research um, for heritage uh, more accessible, especially when it comes to Black and Indigenous sites. And so they're creating an AI database that will actually help you not only make it more accessible to the general public, these, these sites and these stories, but also help with assessing risks for future adaptation strategies to preserve these sites in the future. Oh, wow. You mean... Uh... 
you would identify sites that are most at risk, for example, because of climate change, whether it's because of severe weather or sea level change, and that would help uh, people determine, well, we better look at this site now because this site could be endangered a decade or two in the future. Is that how it works? Yes. Um, And also on the terrestrial side, right? So uh, thinking specifically about the example of cemeteries um, that are at risk of basically they're falling apart, they're in bad condition, buildings and things like that that need to be assessed uh, if they're important um, and should be saved. So, so yeah. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to uh, studying cemeteries, are there particular technological tools that come to bear, whether it's ground penetrating radar or, I don't know, metal detection or whatever, or is it just a case of identifying a site through the historical records and then going in with, uh, with your brushes and your, uh, and your trowels and doing the work by hand? Yeah, so that is, the latter part of that is probably how Indiana Jones would have done it. Um, <laughs> but now we have an array of various tools and technology, even your iPhone cameras and everything that we have in our immediate possession are pretty, pretty darn good at capturing site footage. Um, and so aerial recognizance is something that we use. And it literally just means taking aerial photos of sites. And so uh, Google Maps and ArcGIS and some of the uh, images that we have that are aerial shots of a place um, we now use <laughs> to mm-hmm. help us in that. Um, and we can go back into the record and cross-reference that with historical maps and it'll give us a better picture of where we are now and where things might have been in the in the past. Um, and then ground penetrating radar or GPR is a staple for cemetery archaeology um, because it's minimally invasive and it is basically a machine that you run along the ground. You, you're not uh, penetrating the ground physically, but you are um, sending tiny pulses of energy <laughs> down there. And it's basically doing the same thing as the side scan sonar. It's bouncing it back and it's giving you an image of where anomalies might be. So we can locate gel middens or burials or anything large that is concealed by the um, a couple layers of dirt. And we can see, like, does this look like it's presenting a burial or something else or the foundation of a building? Um, and that can help us decide where we want to drop a shovel test or open up a unit to excavate. Another facet of uh, technology and how technology is transforming archaeology has to do with how you get the results out or how you interface with the wider public about what you're finding. And you've been very active on Instagram and social media and trying to get the word out. Uh, how has that been for you? Is it Does it add more work or more satisfaction? Is it uh, something that you have to do? Or is it something, I, I suspect it's something that you want to do? I think at this stage, it is something that we want to do. Everybody that is in archaeology, anthropology that is on social media definitely wants to be there. However, the way how prominent social media has become in everybody's lives is sort of forcing these, pushing these bigger institutions to make it a need and a must, um, especially if they want to capture younger audiences to go into these majors, to be inspired. And also people are definitely going to social media to get history that 
is not typically taught in schools um, and that they don't see often. You also get it from streaming programming like Netflix and Hulu, but social media is quickly becoming, and TikTok, there's a lot of archaeologists oddly enough on TikTok, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, explaining their finds and what things mean and explaining the technology and sort of demystifying archaeology in a way that it hasn't been done before um, mm-hmm. unless you go to class and learn and pay for it. So. And you mentioned Netflix. Uh, Netflix has had uh, quite a few pretty cool uh, archaeological documentaries and movies, uh, The Dig, uh, and there was one about the tombs at Saqqara uh, in Egypt, and and most recently there's the Queen Cleopatra docudrama series, which has generated a little bit of buzz over uh, whether, you know, what the skin color of Cleopatra was, and, and there was a whole debate over how these ancient figures are depicted. Is that something that you are drawn into in your conversations with other archaeologists, or do you kind of let that let that alone? You know, oddly enough, like I think it's a little problematic to read race as we know it back into a time period where it didn't necessarily exist in the same iteration. So my approach is to let the Egyptologists duke it out. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that is my, I defer, I defer the question to the nearest Egyptologist in the room. <laughs> the smart way to do it, for sure. <laughs> well, now that Indiana Jones is fading into the sunset, the movie series is coming to an end. Are there some new tales that you'd like to see as uh, archaeological adventure stories? Um, I, yeah, I think I would like to see a lot more archaeology story, maybe in more realistic reiterations, <laughs> give us a little bit more technology, maybe update it a little bit, uh, maybe a little dress it up in a little, you know, a little bit more ethical practice. And I'd like to see actually more South Asian um, and more uh, West and Central African um, archaeology explorations, I think at ancient cities in Western Central Africa, um, I think deserve more screen time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that you have a starring role in bringing that to pass. <laughs> I, I think you could do it on either side of the camera. So thank you so much, Brittany, for being part of Fiction Science and good luck to you with your research and with bringing the message of archaeology to the wider world. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Brittany Brown, Chris Bagley, and Nigel J. Hetherington at Past Preservers for setting up the interviews. Check out my blog item at cosmiclog.com to learn more about Brittany, Chris, Nigel, and modern-day archaeology, and even about Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which will be at a theater near you starting June 30th. Thanks to James Emley for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies. <laughs>